I would probably wind up in like Ravenclaw, the most boring one. Or Hufflepuff <laughs> or something. I would not be Gryffindor. I don't have the juice for that at all. But I do I do not want to be in Slytherin. Why? Period. Period. This is the Harry Potter thing? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not some parcel tongue speaking yeah. freak or of evil and hell. Unless you think I am, in which case this podcast will come to a speedy conclusion. <laughs> well, uh, um, we did get some follow-up today, Joe, and I know uh, I, I want to start with that. Is that okay? Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, because I think it sets up our show today. Yeah. In fact, we got two pieces of follow-up on our last episode. We did. On Hobby Lobby. Yeah. Or actually, it wasn't... Last episode was the our first annual Supreme Court roundup. Supreme Court term <laughs> roundup. Yes. Uh, we got to Hobby Lobby. This is part two of our first annual supreme court roundup i think today we might talk about hobby lobby <laughs> but um we've clearly fallen into the hobby lobby ditch uh we got one from uh we got a note from listener alan who just uh, enjoyed the show and has some other things to talk with so we'll save his feedback yeah a little bit later we also got another email just this morning from listener adam um who he says you've talked on other shows about the lack of standardized methodology and legal scholarship. What does legal doctrinal analysis do that economic or political science analysis could not? Here he's talking about our Hobby Lobby discussion. Right. Um, does doctrinal analysis add predictive value or does it rationalize the court's action after the fact? Um, and then he talks about toward the end of my case, I, I mentioned kind of Jack Balkan's um, high politics stuff uh, toward, toward the end of the, uh, of the class that he, that he took from. He's a former student. Yes. Is that okay? Is that... Is that breaching the anonymity requirements? I don't think so. You haven't okay. said his name or his home address. This is listener Adam. Yep. Yeah. And uh, each term, that seems more appropriate. The practical messages the court sends are so much clearer than its legal analysis. So sometimes I wonder if the non-legal approach is right. He says it's a huge topic. But that, um, I only wanted to start with that today because I think it is a huge part of Hobby Lobby and the fallout in the supposed liberal freak out, the conservative freak out over these reactions. Everybody's freaking out apparently about this case, <laughs> which everybody else says doesn't matter at all. Right. Or is a, or is a, uh, uh, what's the word? Not, it's not that it doesn't matter, but that it's a very modest opinion. Some say, and then others say it's a huge, and we'll get, yeah, I think last time we talked about, uh, Joe, what we, what we thought about that. But, Here, you know. Look uh, for this, for the sci-fi uh, folk and nerds in the audience, I can tell you exactly what Hobby Lobby is like. Not many of our listeners will get this. Some will, though. If you're a fan of Doctor Who, his vehicle, which is known as the TARDIS, right? It's smaller on the inside than it is on... It's smaller on the outside than it is on the inside, right? So it's... On the outside, it's a small telephone box. Mm-hmm. On the inside, it's an unspeakably large, unfathomable multi-space. So that's what Hobby Lobby is like. On the outside, it looks modest. And it says, gosh, I mean, gosh, it says at least 18 times. We're modest, we're modest, we're modest. Right. But the more you think about it and reflect on it, and the more the court over the rolling week and more that it has done stuff with that decision, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. At least that's how it seems to me. Right. It's the principles in it. And so we're not going to go back over every... So last time I felt like we scratched the surface with it. Today we're going to go deeper, not least of which because we have a guest who's competent to help us do that. But uh, we, we, we really scratched the surface by going over the moving parts, explaining why it was a statutory, not a constitutional uh, decision, what its relation was between the uh, uh, kind of statutory principles and constitutional principles, uh, why I thought it was not at all about... Uh, it's, it's not why it's not formally about abortion at all, um, but in fact 
you know, that's a kind of an underwriting uh, policy, an undergirding policy concern. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll drop a, a link to the last episode here. I think this should be seen as a continuation, but I think there will be a lot of additional people who just want to listen to this one because we have today a celebrity. We have a celebrity <laughs> guest. TV star, mm-hmm. auteur, and otherwise just famous. And fantastic, wonderful person. To boot. Yeah, she's in my will. She's in my will. Uh, <laughs> this is, today we've got Sonia West back again, our first repeat guest. I'm back. <laughs> um, Together again for the first time. Yeah, well, that's actually literally true. Yeah. It's uh, our first repeat guest. That's right. We are together again for the first time. And your first repeat guest. Episode one. This goes all the way back to episode one. It's where it all started. The podcast origin story. Sonia was there. <laughs> um, and, and, and the first question I want to ask you, Sonia, mm-hmm. okay, because this is all, this is a very, as you know, a very formal question and answer format podcast. Okay. Uh, so you might want to drink a little bit more of the art, oral argument brand coffee. Um, Joe is going to be taking notes on your responses and, and, and doing redirects. Is that right, Joe? Oh, that's, yes. that's how this works, right? <laughs> yes. Very formal. Yes. Um, to your knowledge... Did you do, before recording episode one of Oral Argument with us, had you done any um, uh, national TV appearances on late night, uh, not late night, but but on uh, worldwide cable television networks? No, I had not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then I do the show. Mm-hmm. And boom, you explode. Boom. You explode like a supernova. Four months later. Yeah. Now you're everywhere. You can't you can't surf the internet for more than five minutes without running into Sonya West. More than two minutes. And here's the thing, so that we don't gild the lily. The causation <laughs> prosecution rests. Mm. QED. Yeah. I think QEF. Right. Yeah, so we're gonna drop a link. So Sonya was uh has you you've written a number of pieces with Dolly Lithwick uh on Slate. Um friend of the show, by the way. Dolly Lithwick. Although interestingly, that was not sufficient to give her the juice to get on national cable TV. That, it, did, it put, that did nothing. It put her on our radar screen, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's all it's all little steps, Joe. It's all yes. steps. Um, so and then were, when you get the booster rocket of oral argument podcast, guess them. Exactly. <laughs> and you, so you, you and she, your most recent piece is on this Wheaton College order that came down after after Hobby Lobby. And, uh, and, and so the, the cable TV appearance I'm referencing is on the Lawrence O'Donnell show, uh, last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. And we'll drop a link to that in our, in our show notes where I thought you did a really great job of just explaining what the order was, why people were, you know, why the majority may have thought it was correct, but why people are mad about it. What's the, you know, what I think he had a, he he was trying to push towards a certain understanding of it, but, uh, what, what, do you want to just set it up for us or just tell me what you right. think? Yeah. And it's, thank you. I, you know, we didn't have much time on the show, but it's complicated and it's a complicated issue. And, and when Dolly and I first heard about the order coming down Thursday night, I think one of the reasons we wanted to write the piece was we didn't want sort of all the legalistic maneuvering and procedural issues to, to stop people from understanding what this Wheaton order meant. And so a big part of the problem is simply trying to just boil it down for people to understand what it is that happened. And, and, um, obviously we can, we can talk about this, yeah. but I'll, I'll, I can go ahead and give it a shot right now if you want me to. Well, this is, so this is the, the I call this an epilogue to Hobby Lobby, which right. kind of transforms a big chunk of its, of its meaning. People are upset. They say the Supreme Court lied to us in Hobby Lobby, or at least weren't straightforward. So, it, you know, Hobby Lobby, as we discussed last time, 
says that you've got to give a for-profit company, at least if it's closely held, an exemption from the contraceptive mandate when it has a strong religious belief that that contraceptive will cause abortions and it doesn't want to do that. Because, as the Supreme Court said, there is this least restrictive, uh, less restrictive alternative that the government could have used, and so it fails. Under That's RIFRA. already being used by other. That's people. already being used. And what is, do you want to go into it from there? Yeah. Right. So this was one of obviously the contraceptive mandate was controversial as the Affordable Care Act was being drafted, and so they 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 did a couple things. They made churches exempt from it, and then they had this workaround, this accommodation for uh, uh, religious nonprofits, nonprofits that hold themselves out as religious. And so the compromise was that if they objected to the contraceptive and didn't want to um, supply it, they could fill out this form, this two-page form. It's called Form 700. And basically, it just asked them to certify that they are indeed a religious uh, nonprofit that objects to this, and then to give the information that will inform the third-party health administrator or insurer uh, so that under the law, then that third party will now supply uh, the contraceptive to the women. Um, so this was usually a big insurance company, right? I insurance mean, yeah. company, or sometimes I guess they're called um, uh, administrators who somehow, admi- I don't know how the insurance part of it works, but who administer it. But the, the point is, that was the compromise. They don't have to do it. They can just sign this form. And then this third party is going to um, um, provide it. And so way back last Monday, can, can I, yeah. so the form goes to HR. HHS. I think the form goes to HHS, but also I think they have to to, to notify their third party insurer. Okay, so it, it's w- w- this little form that you fill out, um, and it may be even only one page. I mean, I think what's on the back is just information. Okay, so right. in terms of what you fill out, it's a single. Well, we're going we're gonna to get to this. We're going to get to this. But yes, in fact, if people want to see the form for themselves, we are linking in the show notes oh, to the uh, to the order that the Supreme Court had, and as an appendix to uh, Justice Sotomayor's uh, oh, dissent, she's got the, form. She, the form is actually oh, in great. there, so you can see it. Um, it the, just to make a common sense and important thing that I think people who aren't lawyers but who have jobs and who have insurance through their employer could understand, like a very basic, straightforward thing, just getting making sure the right and left hand knows what the other is doing. So just filling out a form to give notice, the, the third-party administrator gets it hhs gets it now everyone everyone's on the literally the same page namely page of form that everyone's just looking at um and you want to do that in an orderly way so that people get their benefits and because after all they're helping pay for them and uh so that's a good thing right Uh, so that idea of you know why have a form and why being mean to religious nonprofit? no you're just trying to get everyone on the same page Right. Informationally. That's right. one purpose. But anyway, we'll get we'll circle back. This is a complicated it, case. And, and to trigger, of course, once you put them on notice, you trigger the fact that the third party is going to need to pick something up that the employer doesn't want to pick up under the law as it's been structured through HHS and under the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, let, let me just jump into this now. So so Marty Lederman has a really good post up on yes. balkanization. And Tom Goldstein that goes and, back and forth right. with it. So you should look at both of them. Because the form may do a little bit more than just say, I'm, I have a religious objection, I don't want to do this, and then the government takes over from there. Uh, it may um, have the effect, it probably does, it does have the effect of designating a third party as a plan administrator under ERISA. And this is the this is the exciting part of the show. We're going to go into the law of er- <laughs> ERISA. No, 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 ERISA. <laughs> the bane of law clerks everywhere. No, we are not going to uh, spend any time on ERISA other than to note that the uh, that the regulations uh, that require 
these insurance companies who to, to take over in lieu of the self-insured religious organizations themselves uh, apply to plan administrators, right, under ERISA, under this statute, statutory scheme. And right. the effect of the form is to certify not only that you have an objection and therefore government, you need to do some different things, which is all up to you, but also for the purposes of contraception, this third party uh, administrator will now be a plan administrator under ERISA, at least for purposes of the contraceptives. So there's a real question if without the form, HHS, Youth and Health, uh, Health and Human Services, even has the power to require that, you know, non-plan administrator to provide contraceptives. Right. And all of this is by way to say, uh, you know, ERISA, a very complex statutory regime. It's been in place since the 1970s, I think. Uh, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, a very important federal uh, statute for employee benefits. Um, a bunch of generalist judges, even as smart and able and uh, well-supported as Supreme Court justices, should probably not be freewheeling federal benefits statutes on the back of a napkin. Oh, let's do this. You could just use that form. You don't even need the form. They know, blah, 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 which is sort of how the majority, to me, how the majority's order comes off. Right. And this is part of Justice Sotomayor's, I think, objection to it. So, yeah. So let's get but to the I'd order. Like yeah. to, so I'd like to first tell a little bit more of the backstory here. So I mean, Please. So we're jumping ahead. So yes. a little bit. So yeah. So this form, though, that you're talking about and what exactly it does and the procedures, I think people are still trying to figure out the ramifications of that. But the important part was a week ago, Monday, the Supreme court seemed to love this form that, that like, as you mentioned, the opening of the show, that this is what they sort of held out as the solution here, or you know, they at least for hobby lobby, for hobby lobby, right. for these for-profit corporations. They said there are clearly less restrictive ways we could do this, less restrictive on your religious liberties. See, for example, this form that you use, if you're not religious nonprofit, it's a win-win they religious rights are respected, whatever. So, so that was Monday, and then Thursday we get the Wheaton order. So the Wheaton order was <laughs> Wheaton is a religious nonprofit. It does fall into this category that this form would fall, and and it's one of more than a hundred religious nonprofits who have objected to this. Um, but they had filed suit a while ago that they didn't like this form. They didn't like this solution that we've just been talking about because they think, and this goes a little bit to what Christian was saying about what exactly the effect of filling out this form is, but they think filling out this form, their act of filling out this form triggers the third party to now provide the contraceptive and still implicates them that they are still now um, um, starting this process that ends up with a woman getting the birth control to which they object. And that to them is still a moral religious uh, problem. I called it the, the butterfly effect of contraception that they flap yeah. their wings and somehow, somehow a woman ends up with an IUD and their religious violations are violated. Um, that was their argument. That was their claim. And in this temporary emergency order Thursday night, the, court, at least on this temporary basis, seemed to agree with that. So now all of a sudden, the solution that on Monday seemed like the win-win, on Thursday, apparently not so great. Uh, and, and that was part of what made everyone go, what? Yeah, and, just to go yeah. back to Hobby Lobby, I mean, I think that the, the language of the opinion was clear um, that, you know, the reason Hobby Lobby wins is because, you know, there is a substantial burden you know, and we can go back to that if we want to. Um, there may be a compelling governmental interest in "quote unquote" um, gender discrimination or something else. I forget the way they phrased it now, but uh, they, they just kind of assume that there's a compelling interest. 
But the fact that religious organizations can use Form 700, which, by the way, is not in the statute. This is all of this, you know, the contraceptive mandate itself, as we mentioned in last week's show, and the exceptions to it are all administrative. They're regulations from HHS implementing the statute, as the statute directed them to do. Correct. Right. So Form 700 uh, is a less restrictive alternative. But Alito was very clear that he's not saying, in that opinion, that it is a um, um, requiring that form, although it's less restrictive than just not allowing exemptions at all, is in fact the least restrictive alternative. You know, it's kind of like a local minimum, but not like a global minimum. And so we have to find out it is, you know, so, so now we require everybody to fill out this form and other people bring challenges. And now we right. say, well, is there, could the government be even less intrusive? And we have to, if you can imagine like a less intrusive regime, yeah. this, is the Ginsburg, this is the nature Ginsburg's of scrutiny. Justice Ginsburg's dissent flags the fact that, you know, and notice the majority isn't committing, truly committing to the notion that this is adequate. For the reason you just said, it's well, maybe it's maybe it's okay. It seems okay, but maybe it won't in time prove okay. Will prove in time turned out to be four days, right. and it's not like the issue when Wheaton College came out of nowhere. I think another thing that if people are really motivated and interested, another thing that's really good to read, I think, uh, in this on this very specific issue, uh, is the Seventh Circuit in the Notre Dame case right. on the form. It's a great opinion. Uh, opinion written by Judge Posner. Um, I think lucid. Uh, thorough um, also has his usual flair. There are some funny sort of um, turns of phrase in there, but and I think he cuts through it and gets to the substance of what's going on. Ultimately, the Seventh Circuit panel concluded that this was not a substantial burden uh, because the thing that requires the contraception to be provided without a copay under the insurance program is the Affordable Care Act itself and its implementing regulations not filling out the form. And I think so it's a ca- it tur- they turned it into a causation question, essentially. Right. And, and, and the other thing I think is striking about the Wheaton order, sort of picking up on what you're both saying, too, is how it really signals for us both that this sort of newfound religious liberty, religious freedom, religious conscious, whatever we're calling it, um, um, that we're recognizing in Ho- Hobby Lobby is perhaps even stronger than we realize because they seem to be at least uh, initially sympathetic to the causal chain argument, which means this is a very powerful religious interest that we're, we're now recognizing these companies to have. And I guess relatedly so, or also at the same time that this burden we're putting on the government about how least restrictive they need to be is also extremely high. So both of these bars just seem to get moved up in a way that made it seem like this is even bigger than we perhaps realized three yeah. days earlier. And, and so the statute mandates this strict scrutiny, as we have called it, and I think most people call it, um, this compelling interest combined with least restrictive alternative or, or thereabouts. And, our, okay, there's so much to talk about in this case, but, but one thing is it, people do believe that the government will be able to do things. And that people will not be able just to uh, declare something as a part of their religion. Government has a weak, the the court engages in a very weak sincerity test, says, oh, yeah, you're sincere, and then you're out of any old law. So we must imagine there are plenty of cases in which strict scrutiny will, the the bar of strict scrutiny will be met, right? Uh, That the government actually, I think the court in Hobby Lobby mentioned it. So you're saying there'll be many cases where where we both conclude that there is a substantial burden. Yes, and that 
the government will have demonstrated a compelling interest and that it's in using the least restrictive right, possibility. Right, and it's narrowly tailored, all that. Because right? I could, I could I, frankly, I have an easier time imagining that there are many cases where a court would hold that the burden is not substantial. Well, that's how people thought Hobby Lobby would come out. True. Or, you know, if, if the government And won. that's the power of Sonia's observation, that if it turns out that this, that this, but the notion of substantial burden is on the brink of becoming a universal solvent, that sort of gets every case down to the inquiry about compelling interest and right. least restrictive alternative. I mean, in the con law domain, that's uh, that strict scrutiny move is you know um, fatal. This, this is fatal be my in point. fact, yeah. as it has right. been called. Isn't this going to water down strict scrutiny as a concept, or is, or is this kind of strict point. scrutiny as maybe with the the kind of uh, pre Smith plea? pre-employment division versus Smith set of cases, something maybe different than ordinary strict scrutiny? Because ordinary strict scrutiny is what we apply to out-and-out race discrimination in statutes, right? And, and, and when you engage in it, uh, when, when you're found to engage in those things that are being subjected to strict scrutiny, the state loses. Right. Very few cases. And Korematsu is the exception, right? Uh, did they actually? The Japanese internment case, yeah. isn't that yeah. the exception? Yeah. That, so it, it passed strict scrutiny, it right? It passed strict scutiny. Yeah. So I think there's like one. Seen... Yeah, there's an, there's, a, there's an election case where there's, what, campaigning near the polls, I think, is one, right? But I think, as yeah. you were saying before, though, combining this new strict scrutiny with the sincerity test, the idea that you can just claim something right. is a religious belief. It, it doesn't be, have to be a religious belief you had at breakfast this morning. You can have it now. We, we don't have any kind of test for what your religious beliefs are. You know, you don't have to be part of an organized religion. You don't have to have anything you point to. You can just say it, and we can't really question it. And and in, and in Hobby Lobby on Monday, there was maybe a little talk about, oh, well, we're not going to let people illegally discriminate against people but without really any idea how. But on Tuesday, uh, the court actually, um, I can't, can't remember if this is one of the ones they remanded the order or just affirmed an order that had been, but it was the case about the, the CEO who had the religious objection but also made it clear he had a lot of political objections. He's, he's just not a fan of yeah, Obamacare. This is the Eden Foods Yeah, guy. And, and the court yeah. issued an order on, you know, on Tuesday, again, suggesting that's cool with us. Like, you know, whatever that mix is, we're not going to right. look into what this is. So the sincerity test is also very a very strong protection. We're just really not going to question uh, what this is. And you add that with the strict scrutiny together, which I think is even different than how we use strict scrutiny in racial issue cases. And you know, already the test there is pretty high, but this is even higher. You can just say something, we can't question it, and we're going to put this huge burden on well, the government. How are they going to get things done, um, like you were saying before? I mean, you know, I think in, you know, and you're the con law teacher, but you can tell me, I think in most of con law, you know, strict scrutiny is the test that you apply when you've gone through enough gateways to say this, this smells really bad. And we need to know that there is a darn good real reason and that the law is again, narrowly tailored to that real reason. Right. I mean, it's so, you know, usually you've gone through a certain gateway to get to that point where you've looked at the law and you've seen what it's done and it just raises huge amount of suspicion. Right. Um, and, and the problem here is that, um, we're, you know, maybe lower, you know, one, one description of the problem here, and we can get more into it is we are lowering these gateways or lowering the thresholds. So sincerity, the court has always, you know, the courts have always said that they can look into the sincerity of religious beliefs. That's within the court's domain, right? That's the kind of thing courts do to figure out whether someone's credible. Yeah, person so, might be lying. Person might right, be lying. Right. So assuming gonna, they're not lying, right? Right. They can't look into the theological 
bona fides. Right. Because they rightly fear they would be engaging in an establishment clause violation. So sincerity and substantial burden are are both being, you know, they're mixed together in, I think, a kind of weird way. And the court really, both of them call for both the court to do something and include, like, lots of forbidden terrain. Like, you know, how substantial a burden is it that um, there's a ban on wine on Sundays? Uh, Do we have to look into whether the wine actually turns into blood because you say that the wine turns into blood and that's why you have to take the blood of Christ on Sunday. You know, do we look at that? doesn't seem like the kind of thing the court should look into. Right. Um, but do you really believe it? That seems like maybe you could look into that, but well, maybe I don't literally believe that it turns into blood, but I do believe I have to drink this on Sunday. And, but that's because it's metaphoric. You see the kinds of problems we're going to get into. Uh, and therefore what? Well, I mean, I think, therefore, that the whole statutory scheme is a mess, for one. For some of the reasons we talked about last time, like RIFRA is this submarine super statute that is affecting the interpretations of all statutes in the future. Uh, and uh, actually, um, is it Michael Dorf? Yeah, Michael Cornell? Dorf, Dorf on Law. He's great series of posts. Great on, series on of posts on this. I'm going to link at least one of those up. And people, once you find one, you can find the other, the other posts. Uh, he has a great description of how this troublesome aspect of RIFRA could maybe be interpreted in another way that it can affect interpretations of future statutes, but it doesn't actually control them or change them. Um, so any, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm throwing a lot of ideas out here, none of which are, are well-formed uh, at this point, but um, I don't know. Do we want to get back to Wheaton College and continue to work our way through? Because, Well, I think some of what we were talking about, Justice Sotomayor really tries to address in her dissent, which I assume you'll also link to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's really quite uh, a read. And I think uh, interesting also just in terms of Justice Sotomayor finding her voice, I think, on on, uh, uh, the court here. But she does try to unpack a little bit of the sincerity, the line between the sincerity inquiry and the substantial burden. And she says... Nobody doubts the sincerity of Wheaton's College's objections here. You know, she doesn't doubt it. Nobody is doubting that. But the substantial burden question is the one we're supposed to be looking at. We're the courts, and we can look at that. And 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 that's where she says, just because Wheaton College thinks this is a burden, you know, this this if we do this, it will trigger this, and that will trigger that, and someone ends up with something um, line of thinking. You know, we don't have to buy that. Um, we, we they can believe it, but we can't. We can decide whether that's a substantial burden. And she has a line in there where she says, you know, simply because you believe something is a a burden on your religious liberties doesn't make it so. That that's that's the part we can look into. See, how do we figure that out? That's one of the problems here. So how how do we figure out whether something is a substantial burden on the exercise of religion without understanding? the religious components of the beliefs uh, of, of the belief system. Um, I know there are formal ways that courts have dealt with this, but let's get real about it. I mean, how do you actually go about figuring, figuring that out? I mean, you guys, well, you guys you know, have answers. You're looking well, at uh, one answer that I have yeah. is, is that, um, <laughs> that, uh, that a way to sidestep the problem is not toss into the garbage bin, a really useful proxy which is the difference between for-profit corporations and sole proprietorships. But they've thrown that one in the bin, right? Like one way to sidestep having to assess whether it's a substantial burden is use a signal the person him or herself is sending about the importance of the issue to them. Because if you maintain the line between for-profit corps can't make such a claim, sole proprietorships can make such a claim, then you let the person him or herself send the signal by making a choice about entity formation, 
What kind of entity do I want to be? If I want to have the advantages of the corporate form, one of the things I'll have to accept is that I can't make this kind of claim about the importance of this as a matter of my religious faith. I'll, I'll, I'll give up my substantial burden claim. Um, and that's a way for us to sort ourselves. In other words, the, the court would be giving us a way for us to decide whether it's a substantial burden for us rather than having to put the courts in the position to have to decide that. Um, yeah, I, I, because, because, and the reason I say that that's one way to deal with the question is because when I think about that question, yeah, I don't, I, nothing rushes to mind about the, the great ways to tell whether something really is or isn't a substantial burden. But, so you would look at it basically as a willingness to pay a tax. Like the more willing you are to pay a, a higher and higher tax, the more, the more substantial the burden is. And we actually look at your revealed preference. Yeah. It's a, you can put it that way. That that putting that making the choice of form consequential is a way to get people to reveal the depth of their preference for um, the ability to vindicate that faith principle for themselves in their business life, not just in their personal life. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, that seems like a perfectly workable mechanism. Again, it's it's a way to provide. It's a what it's to me. It's law doing what law does well, which is among other things, it does lots of things. Well, one thing it does well, I think, is it creates some structures within which people can make their preferences clear. It just seems like, like not a great way to do it because you, it seems like it's a tax you place on minority religious beliefs. Like the, the more no, minority religious... No, I don't religious... think so because it's not, it's not targeted to... I don't see any obvious sense in which, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see an obvious sense in which it targets only minority faiths as opposed to it, it's it's I, something all yeah, people yeah, look, with religious uh, religiously rooted beliefs would have to deal with. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that majority faiths could get representation in the legislature and so wouldn't need accommodations. Say more. Give an example of what you're talking about. Well, like Sunday closing laws versus wanting to be closed on Saturday. So they don't need to worry about, well, I would confront this thing about how, whether to be open on Sunday or not. Right. And therefore... Blah, blah, blah. But people who, who desperately need to close on Saturday for religious reasons but can't afford to close yeah. two days a week, those so people are going to have to organize a sole so proprietorship and pay this the, tax. How do you tease apart the fact that it's true that, that one reason why a Sunday closing law might be uh, satisfactory to constituents would be that they share the faith of the legislator and they all want to be in church on Sundays. But another reason that why they might find it satisfactory is they're atheists who think, well, it's nice to have at least one day a week where I can close my store and not worry about the competition. So, you know, the fact, so now we have trouble teasing apart, which is which and which dominates, which group is the bigger group? Because if it's the second group, they could have gotten that law, even in the absence of the interest in religious faith. So if we can't tease that apart, in other words, the fact that there are multiple reasons why people have preferences for certain outcomes, some of them religion and some religious based and some not. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting then, from the premise that we're going to privilege religious beliefs, which I don't agree with. But starting that, starting from the premise that we want something like a RIFRA and that we want exemptions, mainly because we think that religious beliefs will, certain religious beliefs will be underrepresented in the legislature and that there's no good way to do it and that the legislature will forget in various bits of legislation to include religious exemptions. So let's just have a statute which provides them generally, uh, except in extraordinary circumstances, strict scrutiny. Uh, you know, that, well, that's the mechanism a way to do it. may be workable, but I think without, at the very least, it seems to me 
Congress needs to do a much more detailed job spelling out what does and does not constitute a substantial burden. The the very question you posed earlier, which is how yeah. do we how do we do this? How do we sort the substantial from the not substantial? Like I feel like we need more guidance it's, because five Catholic dudes on the Supreme Court f- freestyling it doesn't work for me. It seems hard to imagine that you'd ever really be able to say, even though they're supposed to be sort of separate inquiries, you're going to be able to separate the substantial burden from the compelling government interests. Because right. it doesn't sort of seem like the, you know, the stronger the interest, or if the, like, if the government interest is kind of low, then it's be like, oh, let's just let them have their religious. But if the government interest gets higher, then, you know, we're going to be taking that into account. And, and with the birth control, they have very different views, the majority and the dissenters, about what the burden or the government interest is and, and their ability to do this. But since the Wheaton College injunction, um, for example, there were some uh, petitions filed by some detainees in Guantanamo saying that they have been denied the ability to uh, pray together. Uh, to have communal prayer, and that this is part of their religious beliefs, and they're trying to use Hobby Lobby and the Wheaton uh, um, injunction and all of this to say we should be able to do that. Somehow, I think they might find the compelling government interest of keeping all these Guantanamo de- de- detainees separate is going to outweigh the, that communal. But you can imagine another scenario would be like, let let them get together. Like, that's not a big deal. Um, and so it's it, you're right that even though there's, it does seem like to me that we're going to put those those two inquiries uh, together. And when it comes to the contraceptive mandate, like I said, there's very different views on in, in the Wheaton College injunction, the, the, the unsigned majority opinion said, you know, this isn't changing anything. Every single woman's still going to be able to get her contraception. They said this isn't going to be a problem at all. And Justice Sotomayor writing for the dissenters says this changes everything. Yeah, right. right. I mean, we're, they're not going to be able to do this at all. And this is right. no, how you know, thousands arguments... of women are now suddenly not going to be able to get this. Yeah, how do those arguments fit together? I mean, because if Justice Sotomayor is right, then she's wrong, right? Right. And part of it, and this is going back to something Joe started talking about a little earlier, is so in their injunction, they say you don't have to fill out this form, Form 700, but you do still have to tell them that you're doing this. So apparently you're, you're now, they told them you have to write some kind of letter. And, you have, but, and then letter, you have to tell them we are a religious nonprofit organization and we have a religious objection to this. But you don't have to do the second part, which is inform the third party insurer or administrator um, in other words comply with erisa potentially right so so this again <laughs> let's hear it for freelancing complex administrative law questions in the federal employee benefits which is area. another thing sotomayor takes them to task for and she says you know she basically says you know now talk about making up administrative law from the bench you're you're telling us we're writing this letter now instead yeah. of this form and is Very this odd. what you're supposed to be doing and what are the ramifications of this um so that, that's one of the questions here too is the the court says now you just got to write this letter versus this form which makes it seem you know, what's the difference? And, and, and Justice Sotomayor thinks there's a very big difference and they think there's you know practically no difference. So we're 30 minutes into it, but let me walk, the, let's walk through this in first person mode. Okay. <laughs> I, I suppose I am a, uh, suppose I am a Christian college, you know, um, because corporations are people, my friend. So I, I'm, I'm a Christian college, no, or, or at least I represent. And your name's it. Christian. I re- exactly. So it works. <laughs> this hype was really no, off no, to a great start. This is, yeah, it's really this is going this is going very well so far. Um, and, uh, and 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 again, suppose that there was something like Obamacare, which had been interpreted uh, as we discussed in the last episode, because I think it's a, it it motivates the thinking, where, where there was a requirement to cover in our insurance plans gay conversion therapy. Um, this was the example I gave last time, which is very troubling, right? Because it's the one that 
I think motivated us, or at least you, Joe, to think, well, maybe we wouldn't incorporate it all in that circumstance, right? But suppose that that is the, uh, uh, that, that that is the regulation, and our religion, our, this particular Christian sect uh, that our college represents, is religiously opposed to that in very strong terms. Um, and now, what do we do? If we, we want to object to this, right? And there's a regulation which allows nonprofits to opt out by, by signing this form. The form has the effect of signaling to the government that you don't intend to provide this under your self-insured plan and designating a third-party administrator who will then, under the regulation, have to bear that burden. We don't want to fill out the form because to do so would empower the government to regulate the third-party entity who would then provide the coverage. And our interest is in in no way being responsible for uh, any actual gay conversion therapy. Like we don't, that's the bad result that we don't ever want to see obtained. Can I say something interesting yeah. about the, about the, your argument style and your, your hypo? Yes. Um, and that I think it leaves out, uh, which is um, because of the way you frame it, one thing we know is that is your motivation because you just reported it. Your motivation is sincerely to stop the offering of this because it offends a religious principle. Right. The difficulty is that courts will not have that. What they will have is a claim that that's why. But of course, that claim could be rooted not in a religious belief, but in a desire to save money of some kind, or in a desire to thwart an objective identified with a president who's politically unpopular with that group. Oh, absolutely. Um, right. And so I think what your hypo leaves out, which is very much a fundamental uh, of this kind of litigation, is structuring legal tests that take into account the fact that the motivations reported may not be real, oh, or I, they may not be the full story, or absolutely. they might not... Mm -hmm be the lion's share of the story. Right. right? And, Whereas and, your hypo yeah. kind of leaves that out of the off. It leaves it off stage. No, I, I, I do the hypo one to, to get people to understand that, um, uh, or at least to help remind me um, that at least for some religious adherents, there are real costs to living in a society with rules, you know, uh, and, and where but, those uh, rules not are not dictated by their theocratic regime. Exactly. Absolutely. Right, right, right. That's and, true. And, uh, and to make those costs feel real rather than abstract because yeah. they're, are, they're on others. The other, the other purpose here, though, is just to step through and figure out what we would do and how we, what sense of responsibility we would feel toward the end result, right? And so to step through what we would do, we would write a letter saying we can't fill out this form because it, uh, we don't want to be responsible for this in any way. You, are you going to put in your letter who your insurance no. uh, company is? Right, because you don't want we them refuse. to know, right? Because it makes it easy for them to do it. It makes it easier for them to do it. So what, what if they call and ask you who it is? You gonna, are you going to give an answer? Well, this is one thing that was really uncertain in the... I, um, it, well, at least in, in Marty Lederman's post, is is there some regulation that otherwise obligates a self-insured entity to disclose potential third-party? I don't understand this area of law very well. I mean, and from what I've read, <laughs> like not a lot of other people do either. So, right. um, and my guess is that virtually everyone who doesn't, my guess is virtually everyone who doesn't know it well will resist the impulse to make stuff up about it that binds the entire nation. Okay, so let me just ask you guys this to start with, okay? So suppose that was, you know, my hypothetical is correct. I mean, as a moral matter, what would you want to do? You know, would you 
want to thwart the government in any way possible? Would you sue? I mean, how? What would what would we do? That's the sound of the air conditioning in the background. <laughs> this is a really great question because part of what it gets to is an inner an in an inner struggle I've had over the last few weeks thinking about uh, these cases and thinking about the fact that another consequence of these cases is the way that Hobby Lobby is already being deployed on various sides of the debate about lesbian and gay equality, which affects me personally in a way that these contraception issues do not. Um, and in, uh, the inner struggle I'm having is about the, the role of not just, um, you know, if I participate in that, I'll be participating in something that I think is morally wrong because that's one thing a person could think. But another, per, another thing a person could think is, even though it's morally wrong to me, um, there's a lot of other things that the state does that I think are morally right, that I bet other people think are morally wrong. And one thing I'm really glad that we're all doing is having a body politic and a civil society and not all trying to burn the damn building down. Right. So that that impulse would say, you know what? Fill out the frickin' form. It's true that it bugs you, but there's a lot of stuff that you think is great that bugs other folk, and I'm sure you would be happy if they would just fill out that other form. So in a in a kind of reciprocity that's necessary for civil society, will you just fill out the frickin' form? And try to use the political process to get this law changed or try to, or choose to engage in civil, civil disobedience if that's where you, you feel like you are. But, I mean, to me, this comes down to this argument. I mean, you asked about how can we figure out the substantial burden. And I, and I don't know a universal rule, but I guess it does seem easy to me in this kind of case to draw sort of the causal chain line that you don't your religious rights do not require allow you to control what a third party is going to do that that's where the line is drawn that you can make decisions about what you're going to do and 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 so in the Wheaton College case you have to fill out the form and what happens after with that information is out of your hands I mean yes this is we don't know this is what's going to happen that 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 this third party is, is going to provide the contraception but that's because that's what is dictated in a law that was passed through our political process by a bunch of other people. So that's all actions that involve, you know, are triggered by somebody else. You didn't trigger that. And and so at some point you you know you should maybe we have some respect for what you are forced to do, but you don't get to control what everybody else decides to do or to the extent you want to uh say something about that, then you have to go through the political process. You have to go or you have to make a decision we're going to we're going to not fill this out and and deal with the the consequences of that, but you don't get to just claim religious liberty. And in the Posner opinion, and Justice Sotomayor quotes from this, oh, well, he gives the great example about what if you were a conscientious objector to the war and you you were drafted and you said, I can't go fight, I'm opposed right. to war. And then they said, okay, that's fine, but this is going to cause us to draft, you know, person B to right. go. And now, and, and you couldn't claim, but now I'm responsible for person B going and killing people and fighting. No, you don't get to do that. At some you don't point, get to frustrate the war effort. You, yeah, because exactly. <laughs> right? At some point, yeah. you get you don't get to decide what everybody else is going to do. Everybody else went through the political process and decided to make a promise that women would get contraceptive um, insurance through their employer. And just because we're letting you opt out doesn't mean the whole, you get to stop the whole 
process. Right. You, you get a vote as to whether we engage in certain programs. But what you don't get is the ability marginally to support or frustrate those programs right i mean right. After because it's vote, an attack on it's an attack on the on the very idea of using majorities to settle some important social questions well, and, and yeah. in in the in a context where you know the phrase win some lose some turns out to have some pretty deep wisdom about life like right. you win some and you right. lose some uh, and and you keep participating well rifra i mean that is the theory of employment division versus smith I mean, what you guys articulate is Very exactly the, right. the theory there. RIFRA is an attempt to do something more. Again, I think, you know, it, right. and, and maybe there are studies on this which show otherwise, but in my mind, like, is the product of just a general, like, congressional support of the idea of religiosity because no one ever got voted out of office by being a religious person, right? So, <laughs> but, you know, not necessarily about supporting truly minority religions, but in any event, uh, you know, so, so there it is. And um, I think you could implement it in a way. I mean, I, I actually am confident that you could implement uh, RIFRA in a way that uh, m- helped it do some of what it was intended to do. Um, and uh, by by moving in a very modest way, uh, stop it from doing some things. I'm actually fairly confident it, it wasn't intended to do. Uh, that, that really... Um, make sure the substantial burden test is very hard to meet uh, as to, to keep RIFRA's role smaller rather than larger, not least because next time Congress passes a statute, if it wants to give a more robust religious accommodation, it can. Nothing would stop it. The fact that RIFRA is a modest provision wouldn't prevent Congress from providing an even more robust religious accommodation in a particular context, particular right? Case. I mean, that wouldn't stop them. So why not have the court move much in a much more small measured step um that would be an implementation of rifra so the fact that rifra exists doesn't mean you have to have the hobby lobby problem what i'm calling the hobby lobby another problem. analogy jumped in my head which i think is something you probably could see played out is a lot of people oppose the death penalty and a lot of people oppose the death penalty based on religious reasons and you could again sort of like the 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 being drafted for the war you could imagine the scenario of you are asked to sit on a, on a jury about the death penalty, you say, I, I could never vote for the death penalty for any reason, for anybody, for any crime, because of my religious beliefs. They say, well, you're now disqualified. And because of that, we're going to put somebody else on the jury who is death qualified, as they say. And right. and you would say, but no, and that's going to lead now to them, this person getting the death penalty. I mean, just, I'm sorry. Again, just like it can't be, it can't be that. Yeah, we get, that I mean, that's the, the bottom line seems to be that we get votes and not control. Like the, that's the way our government works, right? We are representative democracy in general. You know, that's the general theory, right? Representative democracy. We don't all have like you know micro responsibilities for the actual execution of the laws. Uh, and what's but, also interesting about this theory is it helps explain why there are instances where that's not an adequate answer, um, namely um, a practice that tries to subvert the very operation of democratic institutions themselves. Where you have to, where they get a, a kind of scrutiny that these other things don't get, where the answer, hey, you get a vote, not a veto on civil society, where that seems adequate, maybe, 
But it's not adequate when the thing that's under attack is your very right to participate politically. And everything, as under Jim and Crow, everything we are saying right. is employment division versus Smith. I mean, that's exactly right. what it is, right? <laughs> exactly. If, if it's a general, neutral, generally applicable, neutral law. Now, if there's evidence this law was passed to go after a particular religious belief, all bets are off. Of course. Then, then we're going to look at it, of course, as it should be. But if there's no evidence that's why this law was passed, it was for other reasons. Everybody has to follow it. It's neutral. You have to follow it. And Scalia even says, and Scalia. Scalia I know. I was going to say, you guys are doing a great uh, job extolling the virtues of Antonin yeah, Scalia. Yeah, and he even says in there, and if there are particular situations, just like Joe just said, if there are particular situations where we want protection, then Congress can pass those in those particular kind of issues. But for these neutral, generally applicable laws, we just can't have it be anyway, or else government could do nothing. And Yeah, and, and so I, hmm, we're not going to be able to do everything in this episode, but I mean, one thought I have that, and we talked about this last time, and I even forget what we said about it last time, but, uh, you know, the, the, the almost blase rational basis attitude of employment division versus Smith never sat well with me because it, it does seem like true minorities who are unlikely to be protected in the political process might, you know, might, uh, it might behoove us to give some additional protections and the courts might be a good location to detect insensitivities that aren't detectable or are thoroughly defeated for majoritarian reasons in the legislature. And I think one of the things we mentioned last time that actually Adam, uh, listener Adam mentioned in his email was that the problem is that that impulse toward religious accommodation has been turned into just another, I think the last time I said it's a cudgel in the culture war, right? So that's what Hobby Lobby is now, right? It's a way for people who are well represented in the legislative scheme to have a second bite of the apple, and whether you can do the first thing that I mentioned, you know, have something which is a little bit more powerful than rational basis in Smith to protect people who aren't targeted, but who are basically the, you know, forgotten about not represented in democracy and who, and, but who nonetheless have laws, which are, have beliefs, which are somewhat incompatible with our generally applicable laws, whether you want to accommodate that, I don't know, you know, I don't know how you do it. Maybe it's something higher than rational basis where there appears to be a true like insensitivity, if not targeting, but less than strict scrutiny. You know, I don't know what you do. Um, yeah, but yeah. that's why the story of Riffers, you know, started as sort of, I think, a happy story in a way. You know, we had the Native Americans, and they wanted to you know, have the peyote, and they get knocked down in the Supreme Court, and there was just this huge groundswell of support. It was bipartisan. We had a Republican-controlled Congress pass it. We had President Clinton sign it. Everybody seemed to come together and say, let's support religions, and at the time the focus seemed to be on the Native Americans and their peyote and, you know, a non-traditional minority religion. And it, it seems sort of like we were coming together to recognize this diversity in our culture and all of that. And then an accommodation that focused on their affirmative practice. In other words, they weren't asking to be exempted from this elaborate insurance program. They, they simply want to have a religious observance that's right. part of their longstanding culture. So you can feel good about that too. Like you're helping them engage in their actual faith practice right and it's in it and it seemed like a substantial burden uh, this was something that they had done and it seemed like a minimal burden on the government interest is it really going to throw our drug laws to have these small groups of you know whatever and it just sort of seemed to come together and then but then here we have you know what seemed to be a group that was very well represented in the political process we had a lot of debate about the contraceptive mandate going into this you know these things were come up and then, and then we get this different kind of opinion from the court well that's a qu- you know so the, the two other issues i wanted to deal with was smith unanimous uh no or did justice no, stevens no. uh o'connor and kennedy 
I want to say. Uh, there were at least a few who okay. thought who wanted well, to well, maintain well, well, to go back and name. Be worth going back and looking at the Smith dissent because we've talked a lot about the majority. But let mm-hmm. you know, we'll take a look at the Smith dissent and see what observations it makes and the degree to which that maps or helps us understand what's happened in Hobby Lobby. Yeah, that could be kind pre, of interesting too. The pre-Smith understanding of the rights of corporations is also relevant, but we don't yeah. have time. So uh, two, two, <laughs> two other issues I want to talk about. Ah. Okay. Uh, one, um, cause we're short on time. Uh, one is how much of this is about contracep- contraception and the control of women. Um, cause I think that's a contraception is almost sui generis here. Right. I mean, in, in the sense that it's uh seems to be the special thing, which is driving everything. And the second is the sincerity of the court. I mean, I thought one of the things about Sotomayor's dissent from this order was an unusually direct attack on the on the court's the court's own sincerity in Hobby Lobby. You know, the, what do they say that uh, she said? Uh, you know, um, we used to think we could take the court at its word, but not something like that, mm-hmm. right? We can't. Basically, yeah. we cannot take the court at its word. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I thought that was unusually direct. So why don't we start with the first one? Although maybe it's the well, no, let's start with that second one because I think the the, the nature of um, of contraception and women's rights is is the bigger one, and maybe we should finish with that. So what about the court's sincerity? Do you think this is a blow, Sonia, for an already a Supreme Court which is already like decreasing in popularity? If you were to believe opinion polls, um. I think it's hard, uh, um, unless you're already sort of the true believer to, to the outcome here, not to read both Hobby Lobby and then to the extent you can get, wrap your head around what they did in, in the Wheaton injunction uh, and not have some um, doubts about you know some of the things they said. And, and the big one being sort of how narrow of an opinion this was, because they really went out of their way in Hobby Lobby to say this is so narrow and really, you know, almost sort of saying, oh, Justice Ginsburg and her dissent, she's just getting all worked up over nothing. This is really not that broad of an opinion. And, and then they and then they say it doesn't apply to things like blood transfusions and vaccinations, but they don't tell us why not. Why or, wouldn't, or race or, discrimination. Or race discrimination. Yeah. And, and, you know, they really just this it's just this little bit about these four kinds of contraception. Of course, on the very next day, they made it clear, no, it's all kinds of contraception in those in those orders that they sent back. Um, um, and just to just can I stop Ginsburg, you there? Can yeah. I stop you there? Because uh, um, and maybe maybe we don't know, and it's okay to say we don't know on the show because you know we can link it up and we can find it out and clarify it later. But um, my impression was, having not read these orders or or the outcome, is that there are a whole bunch of cases which were kind of like Hobby Lobby, which involved religious objections to various to various aspects of the contraceptive mandate. And after deciding Hobby Lobby, the court did what it often does in in cases like this, and that's that they vacate all of the lower decisions and remand them to the lower courts for reconsideration in light of Hobby Lobby. Basically saying, we've decided this case, and now, you know, that probably affects this one. Go back and rethink this, and then we'll look at it Well, my understanding, and I have not looked at them, so this is based on reading, you know, other... Uh, articles about it in the New York Times or whatever, yeah. trying to explain it. But my understanding was there's these series of orders. You're right. It's very common. They'll sort of hold cases until yeah. right. the big case is coming. And then, uh, but then what they did the next day, so the, those cases all involved different kinds of objections to the contraceptive mandate by for-profit corporations um, that they were holding. But the, the lower courts had been mixed on some. So they, the corporations had won in some and they had lost in some. And my understanding was in the cases where they had won, the court issued orders just affirming those wins. And then on the cases where they had lost, they sent them back to say, 
reconsider in light of our decision yesterday. So the signal was sort of like the corporations should were supposed to always win. I and mean, if you it's look not at the, and if you look at what was complained of in the pattern of wins and losses, it included all forms of contraception. It included all forms of contraception, and it included the Eden Corporation's one with there where, where there was lots of evidence um, about his real lots objective. of evidence about how sincere this was, or whether it was more a political objection. So that was sort of the first step in realizing, you know, no, this wasn't quite so narrow and. Yeah, um, which was the very next day, and then it was followed up by Wheaton. By Wheaton College, um, yeah. Did you see the tweet about how um, applicants shouldn't bother filling out the application form to Wheaton College because it's so burdensome? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which misses the point, but it's a typical kind of Twitter kind of thing. Um, I mean, there's a, a you know, you asked about how some this is about sincerity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it, you can be. Um, you know, someone's sticking, uh, someone's trying to shoot something uh, into your arm, right? And they say, oh, you know, this needle, it's very narrow. It's very thin. <laughs> I don't, hope so. Don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. And you say, well, what's all that fluid in the chamber behind it? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you don't need to know that. <laughs> That's tomorrow. That's going to happen tomorrow. Don't worry about that now. Right? So are you being sincere when you say the needle is thin? Yes. And No. Well, this is a, this was our conversation uh, last week, right? That this is an opinion which, as Sonia mentioned, is a, appears to be drawn very narrowly, and they go either to, out of their way to say this case is not that that being say vaccinations, anti-vaxxers, it's not that race discrimination, but there is this vacuum, this void of what the principle is that would distinguish right. those cases from the other, um, and so maybe now all contraceptives are in. But the the point is that, as you say, like it would have been strong medicine in one opinion to say, you know, uh, for profit companies, at least when they are quote unquote closely held, we'll have to figure out what that means, uh, can deny contraceptives if it concords with the religious beliefs of the owners, right? Instead, we have just four out of a whole bunch of contraceptives left in Hobby Lobby, right? The Hobby Lobby employees can choose between all these other wonderful methods, just not these four, <laughs> right. um, and yeah, so that so you think that kind of strains credulity in a way that that I mean, or maybe that's the wrong phrase, but that the the court seems is it devious? Is that the right word? Devious in like writing this narrow opinion and then strengthening it after the fact? Does it seem devious? I mean, I don't devious is a strong word, but I mean, I, I'm not generally somebody who gets all worked up about slippery slope arguments, right? I don't think just right. because, yeah, oh, either. we could go to here, we could go to here, we could go to here. But yeah, the I Hobby agree. Lobby opinion was, you know, from day one, it was, like I said, they tell you these things without, I mean, there's a difference between slippery slope arguments and, and saying you're going to draw a line without any explanation of what rational, you know, logical, right. legally, another, legally and I look sound down, way you're going to draw that and, line. And I look down and you're strapping me into onto a snowboard. What's so going on here? Justice Ginsburg driving her dissent saying, you know, nah, and you know, she says it better than that, but right. yeah, nah, and like, this is going to have these brought, you're entering a minefield, all the things she said. And so, and they're like, no, 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 you know, don't, oh, don't worry, no, don't get heard, all worked up. So I, I, it is a little bit, and then the speed by which yeah. they broaden it is for the Supreme Court remarkable. I this mean, they the do not usually work that fast. This is the practical question I have: is is it as? And I don't, I'm not asking you to divulge any confidences, obviously, but you did work there, so I one has to wonder: is it conceivable that on Monday, as they're in court and the opinion is getting announced in Hobby Lobby? Is it possible that they don't yet know any of what will be in the Wheaton order on Thursday? 
Yes. I mean, it's I mean, certainly knew so these that, cases. So those papers could have showed up Tuesday, and the thing happens on Thursday. In fact, well, they knew these cases were in the works. I'm sure they were right, aware of that. But I mean specifically but the discussion no, my understanding in Wheaton is College. Actually, I'm not even sure, but my understanding is the injunction might have or you know petition might have actually come to them after in, in response to hobby lobby like okay um uh so no it's possible they 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 didn't it wasn't all planned out like here's what we're gonna do well, that's and, a good I have a question too because it seems like fast work by justice sotomayor to produce that dissent it was like I a 20 page dissent it was very long and and uh, but the whole issue too about the not to get you know too legal but uh, an emergency temporary injunction was a very unusual thing uh they don't do it very often they do not do it with 16-page dissents. Uh, that is not something you see very often. And and these cases were still in the lower courts, and they were still being adjudicated. And you, you're only supposed to, you know, the court's only supposed to do that when it's, I guess the term is indisputably clear that there are rights that are going to be, uh, and usually you do it when there's you know going to be this sort of uh, irreparable harm. Is this the uh, same Supreme so the, Court They procedure? could have just waited and dealt with this in the normal right. course but, of things. But stop the counting in Florida? Was that an actual preliminary? I don't know under the federal rules what it is, but, you know, that's the last time I remember the... Right. Gun. That yeah. was a stay, and they're very similar. They're very similar yeah. um, but um I actions. felt like there were two there. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't remember. But it's the same type of process. It's, yeah, it's just, you know, we're only going to step in when we think something terrible is going to happen yeah. if we don't stop this right now. And, and just to come back and to one, you can't, one point... And that you can't undo. So if it's like, if it were an order, like a lower court discovery order that required an attorney to disclose a confidence with a client, that was wrong mm-hmm. and that everyone could show under established precedent was wrong. And once it gets divulged, you can't get the confidence back. The secrets out of the back, right? That's mm-hmm. an instance where at least mandamus in the lower courts is routinely used to protect attorney client privilege. That kind of problem. And another issue that Justice Sotomayor takes issue with about them using the temporary injunction is that the, the standard is supposed to be when uh, the law is quite clear, that it's quite clear that the law has been violated right. here. And she points out that the lower courts were very much in dispute and, you know, this court is very much in dispute and it was not at all settled. And again, this was not right. the way to, to, to do this. I just want to come back to the slippery slope point uh, one more time, because uh, the, what distinguishes for me the Hobby Lobby case from a typical slippery slope concern is that with slippery slope, it's usually there's some kind of standard, you know, uh, whether it's reasonableness or something else. And someone worries about what might be at the, at the far end of that standard, Mm. right? You know, that, you know, what about this case? What about that case? All we have is this totality of the circumstances test, which is, you know, the court shows us how they applied in this case. It's unclear how they would apply it in another. And there's a standard, which seems very elastic or uh, plastic, I guess would be the right word. But in Hobby Lobby, the concerns that people have about what you might think of as a normally slippery slope actually is that we just don't have an articulated standard at all. We don't know why race discrimination is out and why anti-vaxxers are out. Although the court goes to pay, you know, doesn't, it seems more definitive about race than anti-vaxxers, if I remember. But yeah, right. it, it doesn't say anything about other kinds of discrimination. I think it also right. mentions the notion that general taxation is not subject that, to this right. That's the longest portion of the um, exceptions part of the yeah. opinion is on is on taxation. I okay. So one more thing. The um, part of you is why is that? Yeah, why was that supposed to even be initially comforting? I mean, you're comforted by perhaps this, that they're saying there's limits to the scope, but the other message is you know we're going to favor this belief that's held by I guess what evangelicals and whatever Catholics and um, but we're not going to care too much about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Scientologists and the Amish who don't want to pay taxes and you know whatever right. yeah, and, and is that comforting or are we supposed to think oh good and uh, you're going to 
you know, it was a, such a strange, strange uh, part it, of the decision. I yeah, I agree, and that, that to me is the most concerning part: this favoring of normal religions over weird religions, mm-hmm. uh, or over majority religions over truly minority religions, and. I don't know. I guess it, it probably won't surprise you guys to hear that. I think that this is another this is another aspect of the general public-private battle in in society, right? That uh, um, the 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 line between adhering to publicly created laws, which uh, which are built on top of public norms, and allowing space for private actions and and for the construction of like many societies with private rule sets. You know, so my family, right? We have our own rules within our family, and we might even object to governmental rules that interfered in the in in those rules, right? Sure. So this is and typically, you know, people will get pissed off about this kind of thing. If of course, you, you'll get segments of society which jump up and say, "Well, you know, uh, um, a law pr- forbidding me from spanking my kids, right? That reaches into the family and it, re- and it and it replaces private rules of a certain kind with public rules." Now. But that's what public rules always do, right? Public rules always come in and they displace in certain areas. So Certainly when they're complained about, that's what they're doing. Right. When they support what the person wants to do, they might not notice that it exists. Exactly. So it's I, when, you, when you hear a complaint about it, it's because it, it intrudes. And I think the salience of a particular kind of um, displacement of private rules with public ones uh, arises based on kind of the 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 thickness of the private institution that's being displaced so the family is like high you know it's like you know what a family is right your family my family we kind of know what that means and we know and and because we have a really strong sense of what a family is it's pretty clear when that entity is being displaced in terms of its own internal regulatory authority right an employer you know i have a job i i show up for my job right and it's a private you know for us it happens to be public but you know the template is basically private there's some private enterprise we show up for it we work that's a part of our lives it's not our whole lives um it's a it's also a a private sphere in which there are all kinds of internal rules but that over time have been displaced in many areas with public rules to respond to particular kinds of problems whether it's workplace safety or um or um, privation, right, through the form of wage and hour laws and things like that, right? Um, churches are a little bit more like families. Um, in the, you know, we in the United States, at least, you know, the public regulation of churches is uh, verboten is probably too strong a word, but um, you know, they generally don't pay all kinds of taxes. Uh, you know, any any kind of rule which attempted to regulate within a church is, is, you know, they're, they're constantly they're, making right. exceptions. There are for a lot churches. of employment decisions. They can only, you know, hire certain types of people and right. have like, certain beliefs and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, all kinds and of an exemption from title seven in that sense right. in the Hosanna Tabor case and, and in right. the boy scouts versus Dale case, right. you know, which right. was also one that I wasn't super excited about when it came down when I was in law school. Um, this is the one where uh, the Boy Scouts said that they uh, basically were an expressive organization. They had they were an organization with beliefs, and those beliefs were totally incompatible with having uh, gay scout leaders uh, and, Mem- and members. Dale was a member case, not a leader case. I think he was a leader. I think I he was think. a leader. Oh, he but was, he had yeah. been a member. He, he had been a member. Oh, that's right. He, he, had, he had a been, leader now. Yeah. 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 And so, so it was a you know this was all about well if you have a First Amendment. First Amendment organization, which is a weird word, but an, an organization whose purpose is, is animated by certain beliefs, 
you have to allow them the room to kind of maintain those beliefs. An interesting thing about that, too, while they they weren't claiming this was a religious belief, there was a lot of dispute about whether this truly was part of their expressive message, whether they really, truly were an anti-gay organization. And Stevens questioned that. Stevens, right. That was a big part of the debate. And the the majority, which was Rehnquist, I believe, um, said it doesn't matter. And that they could have come even at the point of litigation and tell us this is what their expressive message was, Uh, which, and whenever I teach that case, I always ask, my students who are involved in scouting, I usually have some, did you believe you were part of an organization that had an anti-gay expressive message? And most of them say, no, that this was, you know, that this is, so even the members themselves didn't know that this was an expressive part of their organization. And, 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 but the court there basically says you can come later after the fact in litigation and tell us, oh, this is a key part of our expressive litigations, which I think is what we're looking at is a similar type of view in terms of the in, religious beliefs in that, Hobby and, Lobby. and the ability to, to question the sincerity. Like I said, you didn't have to have this belief at breakfast. You could have it later because we saw them do that in Boy Scouts. And, and this is this fascinating. Is my kind of general point here that I'm kind of, you know, scrambling towards a little bit is, you know, why did these battles erupt? So, so what is so politically salient about Hobby Lobby? And, and I think that, um, and, and, and Boy Scouts is, is along these same lines when a private organization that we think has this expressive internal rule, you know, thick internal rules, uh, important internal rules is being pushed around along a dimension, which is kind of in the, I don't want to mix a whole bunch of metaphors, but along a dimension, which is very important in the culture wars, that's when these battles, it seems to me are going to erupt. Right. And, and so religious groups are, in, um, I don't know, uh, religious groups are feeling a lot of threat from secularists in general, but on, uh, the gay issue and on the women issue, right? Um, so it's abortion, contraceptive, contraception and gays race is done, right? That was the issue for religious groups in the early part of the 20th century and before, uh, but mean, now all the me, religions are past that. Part of me know what they're feeling, and because I'm not in one, and I'm not. Part, I mean, it's not my. <laughs> that's it. That's not. I'm not in that culture on a on a regular basis. So I don't but actually know whether they're feeling threat or whether they're just feeling like yeah, this yeah. is who we are and this is just normal. For, I, so I just don't know. Part of me just doesn't know, right? Yeah, I mean, what you say doesn't sound implausible but i but uh, but i actually don't know from firsthand experience whether that's what they're subjectively thinking or not and in a way i don't actually care um because they're making the claim and the and the claim and what it does to either dissolve or reinforce our ability to have things like majoritarian institutions and things like accommodations that allow us to live peacefully with each other in a deeply pluralist reality uh, that's what i care about i was talking about this with someone yesterday and um uh, also a friend of the show, but hasn't been on yet. But I, I really do think that the 21st century, this century that we're in, I think, is the century of gender. Uh, where we are, you know, like maybe last century was a century of race. Also gender, too. I mean, you know, this is, you know, it's a slogan, so whatever. Uh, but that, you know, this is like, I think, one of the defining problems of, of our time is is uh, figuring out and how to move to a society in which women have an equal role, right? And that People who are are transgender have equal roles and people who are gay have equal roles. Um, And with race, it's a, you know, it's, we we still like the the, um, kind of colorblind um, uh, versus um, 
uh, caste system view is still causing all kinds of problems yes. towards uh, people understanding one another. Yeah, the work of the last century is not done. It's not at all done. Yeah. <laughs> no, not, it's not at all so done. So don't, don't declare another century quite yet. No, but... I, but <laughs> You know, we're, we're, we get around, to have more of them at once. We get to have them run concurrently. I'm just saying it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of groping around. But it, it's no accident that I think that there is a contraception exception in the administrative regulations. Whereas, you know, in the abstract, there could be all kinds of reason, things that people object to. And, you know, there's no Tylenol objection written into the regulations, is there? That I know of. It's contraception, Right. Well, that's, I mean, I think what you're getting at, again, goes back to the strange part of Hobby Lobby with the exceptions about how, oh, this wouldn't cover uh, 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 blood transfusions and vaccinations, but it covers this. And, and, you know, really, it is hard to be like, why not? What is the difference here? <laughs> and the difference seems to be this is something that affects women. And, and this right. is, so this, you know, those other things that affects everybody, including men. So we're not going to mess around with those. I mean, at, right. at least that's how it comes across to some of us who read this. And and then you add to that the fact that the, the dissenters in the the Wheaton injunction um, were the three female justices. I, you know, again, I don't often play the you know the, the gender game, but it was striking. It was striking, and of, of just for the three of them to get together, they didn't even. I don't know where Breyer was. He had been part of the dissent in Hobby Lobby, but he didn't sign the dissent in the, the Wheaton injunction. So you just have the three women really kind of screaming in a judicial kind of way about what was going on here. So it really is hard to deny. The, the the gender aspect of this case. And I think you were, were referring to this earlier in the Hobby Lobby decision when they talk about what the compelling government interest here is. They say the compelling government interest in gender inequality, gender inequality. And yeah, they, put it, inequality. they put it in square, in in square quotes. Yeah, the, the, that thing, that gender inequality. Um, this is radio, this podcast, so you can't see yeah. that I'm making the quotation marks. But um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll put you them know, in post. as though it's one of those things that you, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, that you may or may not believe exists um out there but and yeah. so it, it really i mean is. it it's practically read place. like an snl skit it was like you know and the and the government's interest in you know lady part and sexy time i mean it, <laughs> it, it just because with the scare quotes it just looks so odd right but like we have, we have to put we have to put that in scare, scare quotes? quotes yeah yeah that 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 women are are equal members of our life and polity and that their basic preventive health care includes reproductive health because they right. also yeah, have a reproductive I mean, system, so, just like men do. Has, that has a profound effect on their ability to participate fully in right. social and economic life in this country. Yeah. I thought that's one of the things we did decide with the Roe and, and its progeny. Right. That we we said that, and then now all of a sudden it's like it may or may not be an interest. Well, people Alito's poo-pooing point, though, in the, in the yeah. immediate uh, aftermath of Hobby Lobby, people sort of poo-pooing the fact that Justice Ginsburg puts that front and center in the first few pages. Mm-hmm. That the ability of women to control their own destiny in reproductive health terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, no, that she's talking about what's really at stake. Why would it, uh, it doesn't well, seem I mean, like I an inappropriate thought, thing. Yeah, it seems like people, totally on point. A lot of people thought that was a tactical mistake, you know, like Scalia and Windsor. Um, I, but, but I, I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't know, but I, I think, you know, what Alito is trying to say, I think is that, is that that was, it, it's not that gender inequality is not a big problem. Uh, I, I don't know what he thinks of that problem in general, but that it's, it encompasses too much without being specific, and the government has to have a more narrowly, a narrowly tailored compelling interest in order to perform the narrow tailoring analysis, right? So it has to have a, the, the government has to say, well, what what kinds of gender discriminations are are being rectified here specifically? Now, again, I 
you can always play this game. So, uh, uh, of, of saying it's not narrow enough or it's too, too narrow or, or, or so narrow that it, there's lots of stuff that's not included. I don't know. Um, I, but I do think it's, you know, a lot of the, so the reason for this, the inclusion of this particular exception, the reason for the vitriol over it, the reason that this plays into a sense of a war on women or the reaction against the framing that there's a war on women. It's, I think there really right now is, a huge divide politically, which is spilling over. This goes back to Adam's email from the beginning, right? Yeah. That this political debate is spilling over into the judicial sphere of who gets to decide what the role of women will be in our society, right? Um, and for a lot of people, the answer is it should be privately determined for each family and then beyond the family for each church or each religion or other private social component. And for others, they say, well, we want to empower individual women to break out of whatever mini society they're in. It should be the choice of each individual woman what role she will play in her society. And that includes the ability, if she so chooses, to control her reproductive destiny right, through the use of contraception, if she so chooses, even abortion, if she so, if she, uh, so chooses. That kind of grant of a liberty which which moves around with individual women right the liberty which attaches to an individual woman is destructive of the controlling um, power of a smaller private organization like a church or like a family and and that i think is what the the big battle is here right so this exemption is really and you know there's another sense in which this is also true is all about allocating power between basically bosses and employees in a way right this gives more power to bosses um, but these are particular kinds of bosses, right? They are workplaces, which are kind of quasi church workplaces, you know, maybe Chick-fil-A thinks of itself that way. Um, Hobby Lobby seems to, and the other people say, no, no, you need to be a lot more church-like in order to claim this sort of thing as in a nonprofit organization whose mission is more like uh, Wheaton college, right? right? Mm-hmm. You look at Wheaton college mission statement. It's very, you know, it's all about uh, religion. Um, but so this is like expanding the sphere of those private entities, which will have some control over creating a norm that people adhere to. Um, I think it's really about that. I, at least that's what's creating the the kind of kinetic energy that's driving this debate, right? That is fueling it. Um, you know, even though doctrinally we could step through as we started to like each individual step here and ask what a substantial burden is, ask why this exemption, not that exemption, whether it's narrowly tailored, what the compelling interest is, how narrowly drawn the compelling interest needs to be. Um, but I think like Adam's email indicates, um, these terms are very, uh, plastic, I guess is the right word, right? So they're very plastic and, and they are going to respond to the current political debate. Whereas if this were a small religion arguing about its right to take drugs um, and maybe a religion you never heard of before, but it's like the meth religion or like, I think we even, didn't we have the church of the lead foot early on in the speed traps? Yeah. One of the speed trap shows. The court doesn't resonate. It It doesn't, that that wouldn't resonate with all the issues because it's not about what I think. Again, I think a lot of people think on both sides of this or all the many sides of it, the defining issue of our time. 
it's sort of reminiscent in terms of how it's viewing as the power struggle between employer and employees, but of course, not just any employees, female employees, you know, it's reminiscent of sort of the Lochner era and, and the, you know, the battles over minimum wage and maximum hour. And the view was then you could just, you know, contract whatever um, process you want and, and sort of the laissez-faire approach that dismissed that there was a great power inequity going on here that the government had an interest in trying to stabilize. And and I think you see some of that going on here, too, maybe less so in the legal debate as in the popular debate about the women can just go buy the contraception on their own. And Justice Ginsburg tries to point out, you know, how much an IUD costs to a minimum wage um, worker and that, that that's not um, uh, an option. Or, you know, the women can just um, seek out an employer who does cover this if it's important to them. And, you know, and all those kind of things, which at least when the Lochner era, when the court was saying these things, people sort of look at, back at it now as, as, you know, fictions. I mean, that that these workers don't have those options. And But we're sort of hearing that again of this. They can they can decide for themselves, but they can't make their employer provide it for them. Yeah, it's like the Lochner era is about technical freedom versus practical freedom, or if you like, kind of public freedom to engage in any contract, but coming along with kind of private slavery. Like, you know, you don't know which employees, which employer will exploit you, but it will be somebody because you have yeah. to live. Right. And the, and the, the sort of freedom of association claims that have grown up under the contemporary First Amendment are, are reproducing in some ways those same contests, those same conflicts. Uh, and it's about your discussion before about private power and public power and the, the where the border is between them and the, the sort of rival claims that are getting made on either side. I mean, that rings very true for me that as I yeah. think about it, that that's that that's uh, that's very much what's happening. And that seems to me what the Lochner era was also about. It was about the same sort of location of that boundary and what kinds of uh, subordinations the public is willing to uh, tolerate in the private sphere um, before it insists on stepping in and replacing those subordinations with other right. standards and other norms the, of equality what is an appropriate interest of government does it right. does it work in uh to this and as you, you posted about sort of the idea too of like freedom and liberties being a zero-sum game and, and then right. we're shifting them to the employers at the expense of, of of in this case the female employees to be right. able to make these decisions, make their own religious decisions about whether they think there's a problem with having an IUD or whether they think there's a problem with, with right. taking plan B. And, and um, instead we're shifting those decisions and that power to, to the employer. Thinking that the, that the female employee could always just go work someplace else. Could work and someplace else or use her wages, you know, for that instead of for housing and food. I'm going to cut us off, even though we could talk about this for much longer, I'm going to cut us off because Sonia has like other media engagements. <laughs> I know. Today. Crazy. Other, I would say other lesser media engagements <laughs> lesser. to engage in. But we, I, I think, so it is, uh, oh boy, yeah, it is, as we recorded, it's 129. I think we promised you 130, which leaves just enough time to ask you, to, to ask you, to ask you. Yes. Suppose you're driving down the road, Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> I would, what, Our I speed you, I, trap was specially developed after I, you were a guest. That's, it was. Yeah, yes. we, you've not been on the record about this, and I yes. think it's an injustice because you are the, the lead-off uh, you know, guest. I, I think we need to have you on the record about speed traps. Do you flash your lights to warn others about speed trapping uh, police officers? And is I, Joe I, a monster, and if so, how much of a monster? <laughs> 
Um, I uh, do not have a, a moral problem with it. I feel like there's, it's, you know, a perfectly fine, but I can't say I remember ever doing it. Like, I don't think I oh! ever, uh, yeah, Joe. so I'm in the Joe cam. But, <laughs> but I would have no problem, yes, exactly, triggering someone else, calling up Joe and saying, splash your lights, and I have not triggered <laughs> that action against mm-hmm. you that, um... You know, Marissa Baradron says, you know, basically couldn't believe that there existed such things as humans who didn't warn us. She thought who it was a basic human obligation basic yeah. Oh, yeah. to tell each other. Yeah, but you're in the you're in the view that there is there is neither there there is neither on either side kind of a Kantian imperative uh, to warn or to not or or not to warn. I no, I do, that does not not trouble me. Right, and for and for recent listeners, I'm referring to a judicial opinion in which Kant's universal imperative was actually cited in a speed trap case. <laughs> <Yeah>. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thanks a lot, Sonia. Thank you so so much. much. Always fun.